So we have been in a long trek through the Gospel of Matthew for most of the year, and this is the time of the church calendar wherein the church celebrates what's called Easter, Easter Tide, and the whole premise is to begin to imagine and to believe and to think what it's like to live in light of Jesus' resurrection. What, what does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? His resurrection was different in that he is still living. That's the claim of Christianity. And what an evangelist was back in the day was a person, whenever there was a change in power, they would send runners out because they didn't have newspapers or technology back then. They would send runners out to go announce the news that a shift in power had taken place. And in our passage, right before the two Marys, remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus says, go and tell my brothers what happened. And so the Marys are the first evangelists to this new change in power that was taking place, wherein Jesus is going to claim that I am the king of all things, which is quite a claim, okay? And this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends, and it is very, very peculiar. And I want you, we always, with this passage, is often called the Great Commission. Um, I want us to think about it in terms of what it was like for the disciples to actually interact with the risen Christ right after they had denied him, okay? Um, And this is what Jesus says to them. This is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, it's our practice here in this church to spend some moments in silence before I preach. Um, And what we're doing there is that we're asking God to be present to us. But if you notice how this gospel just ended, what does Jesus say? He says, I am with you. And so when we pray, we're simply coming to the awareness of that reality. We are coming into the belief, a deeper belief, that what he says is true about us. And so the thing that I want you to pray with me, you pray silently, I'll pray with the mic. Pray that God would make himself known to be holy to you right now, to be present to you. And uh, we'll do that together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is always good to be in the presence of your people because it reminds us that you are with us, that the ancient of days is with us, that even before the foundation of the world, um, your spirit was hovering over that chaos. And we ask now that by the spirit, you would illumine these words to speak deeply to our hearts, the reality that you are the truest thing about our existence, and you are what sustains our life. You are 
what sustains our faculties. And when we are in connection with you, attached to you, in union with you, we come alive. Um, and we're called into this great mission of living life in the awareness that we participate in your kingdom and participate in bringing heaven back to earth. And so would you uh, give us that great insight, give us that vision. In Christ's name, amen. If you grew up in church, you probably heard that passage preached about, I don't know, maybe over 100 times. Um, I, I love it when I actually think about what the disciples are experiencing and in the flow of the actual Gospels. What's so counterintuitive about Christianity is that the things that we are embarrassed by, particularly our, our failures or the ways in which we feel incompetent or that we don't know what we're doing, are actually the exact ways in which God transforms us. That's the avenue by which God makes himself known to us and then begins to transform the world. That's what's happening in the first two verses. It says, Now when the eleven, when the eleven went to Galilee, they went up on a mountain. Whenever you go up to the mountain uh, in, the, in the scriptures, that, that's, you're going up to worship. You're going up to encounter God. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, who were the eleven? Uh, there were twelve. And one of them betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. His name was, was Judas. But the fact that the rest of them were there meant that Peter was there and all the other disciples who had walked away from Jesus in, in the time of his deepest hour of need. And it clearly says that even after Jesus' resurrection, I really want you to put yourself in the sandals of the disciples. After his resurrection, they're looking at him. They're in his presence. Some of them are worshiping and some are what? Doubting. Okay, And Jesus takes this mixed group of people, believers, deniers, doubters, worshipers, and I want you to clearly see this, Jesus obviously trusts them to take Christianity to the world. This is how the world changes. <laughs> and it actually happened. Like historically, this is the historical record of how Christianity like got infused and spread throughout the world. It's so comical that like right after this, in the book of Acts, the disciples are looking at him on the mountain, and they're saying, okay, Jesus, now, now is the time that you're going to restore your kingdom back to Israel, right? And Jesus says, that's actually not for you to know. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. And then it says that they're just looking at him, and a cloud takes him away. And I just imagine them being like, okay, uh, well, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> um, I remember when Ambrose had her first soccer game when she was five. Uh, she was all geared up. And she was like really excited and she called me over to the side of the field and she said, she's like, dad, dad, dad. And I was like, yeah, what's up, what's up? She's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and I was like, that's the feeling of the disciples here in, in our passage. And here, here's the, the, the initiation into Christianity here. Um, that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. They... That they really felt in, in the, the truest sense that like 
I'm incompetent for the task. That that's who Jesus likes to use. Isn't that weird? <laughs> you know? Like, don't, don't you think he would, like, employ those who are, like, good at stuff? There are these leadership manuals that a lot of organizations use, churches use it, and they, they talk about the progression of competency. And anytime you start off something, you are unconsciously incompetent. Like, you don't even know that you're bad at it. And then as you grow, you become conscious of your incompetency, right? And then you move a little bit further, and you be, then you become conscious and you're competent. But the best leaders are when they are unconsciously competent. They instinctively know what to do without even thinking about it. And what I want you to see in this passage, just the initiation into Christianity, Jesus is using and utilizing unconsciously incompetent people to spread the greatest and most important news into all the world, which must mean that he can use anybody. And that's kind of how he likes to do it. And on top of that, like, Jesus is never anxious about it. He's never like, oh, they're going to mess it up. And the reason why he's not anxious about it is because it is only through the humility of failure, which is where the disciples were, the humility of failure, that you become aware of even how to participate in Jesus' kingdom. That your failures become the prerequisite to becoming a Christian, to even knowing what Jesus is about. And that is very, very, very different. If, if you come to Jesus in your own strength or in your own name or in your own ability to accomplish the mission, what happens, y'all, is that the, the moment you begin to focus on yourself, it's like the gospel immediately slips through your fingers. It immediately goes away. And this is exactly why we never, we always say here in this church, we are a community that is constantly being changed by the gospel. We never get over this. It is the initiation and what sustains us. That God is constantly bringing us back to not ourselves, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who governs all. And what happens is when we believe that he he loves us in our inadequacies. He comes after us in our inadequacies. And we move out believing that Jesus is with us. That's how the, the gospel hope of the resurrection gets infused into the world. That's how people come to believe in the resurrection. By being uh, witnesses of it. And the reason, you know, why this is credible <laughs> to, to us you know, for these disciples, a place like England did not exist in their mind. This is 2,000 years ago. A place like Nebraska in the United States was about as foreign as Mars, okay? And if you are not a Jew in this room, the reason why you believe in Christ, if you're a Christian, is because of these few people who actually went out and said, hey, this is what happened with Jesus. That is the reason why we're here this morning. I'm sorry, y'all, but that's nuts. Like, <laughs> that's not a great plan, right? I mean, at best, my, my friend says, at best, that's a little bit ne negligent, you know, to entrust this great hope with, with these people. N.T. Wright says, people get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world until they see what, in fact, is being said here in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is bringing 
his rule of life-giving love into the world, but he does it through people. He wants to involve you in what he's about. But they don't know what they're doing. Uh, Some of you are about to graduate high school. And there's a feeling that you get when you graduate. You're like, I don't know if I'm ready for college. Uh, there, some of you are about to graduate from college, and you got to go out and get a job. And you're be like, I don't really know how to do that. Some of you have had children in this room, and do you remember when you had your first child, and you clicked that seat in from the hospital or the birthing center, and you're just like, who in the world put us in charge of another human being? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, this was a bad idea. And this is exactly where the disciples are at. They're like, this is our task? To actually give the gospel to the world? And Jesus is like, yeah, go ahead. I'm with you. That's the promise. Jesus says, I am with you. Jesus is telling his disciples, okay, there is a graduation that has taken place. There is a shift in power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, disciples, and install that rule and reign everywhere that you go. Go. I'm with you. And this is Jesus' mission. This is his manifesto. And this is what it says. Verse 18 through 20. This is Jesus' plan for healing all of humanity. Here it goes. As you are going along, that's what the original says, as you are going along, create disciples. Create disciples of every type of person, every nation, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of time. I want to focus on that last phrase, and then we'll get into the threefold uh, task that Jesus gives these disciples. But that last phrase is the main theme in all the book of Matthew that God is with you. And I would say it's the main theme in all of Scripture. And so long as I am a pastor of people, uh, you will hear me say this when you go into the hospital, when you are the one that are, that's facing a terrible circumstance. This is what I tell my children when they leave my house and they go to the school across the street. This is what I tell them when they go to sleep at night before they go to bed. This is the most important thing I could tell you. Ever. God is with you. He is. I can't tell you a more important thing. That is what it means to live in light of the resurrection. To know, guys, you're holy. And holiness doesn't mean like I'm a good person. What holiness means, you guys, is nearness to God. And when you believe that, literally everything changes because, and I know this is crazy, but what Jesus is telling his disciples is that where they go, so he is with them. Like, he's there too. Which means that when they are discipling and when they are baptizing and when they are teaching, it's as good as if he was doing it. You guys, the greatest thing that you can be for your organization, for your family, 
for your marriage, the greatest thing that you can be as an individual is to believe that you are holy, that God's with you. That really, what drives you, what, like the, the central core of what drives you is to believe that God really, really enjoys your presence. When you don't believe that, you will search for it everywhere. You'll search for it in other people. You'll search for it in, in work or in other things, and it will always elude you because what you most deeply need is the gospel, which says you are of such value. You are of such value to God himself that he literally moved heaven and earth just to be near you. That's what he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which must mean that your embarrassments or your failures or your incompetencies are merely avenues by which, by which you come into the deeper awareness that he's, well, he's closer than he's ever been right now. He's more true to who you are than you, you even are conscious of, uh, of yourself. Like he, he is the truest part of your identity. That's why we are baptized into his name. That his identity is our identity now. That's the promise, is that wherever you go, he is with you. Now, when you believe that, that that's the initiation, and that's the promise, you are ready to participate in his work. And there are three main things that he tells us to do if we want to get in on what he's doing, if we want to be a part of his kingdom and the first is, as you are going, make disciples. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase or, or you know, sometimes that uh, conjures up a lot of guilt in, in us. But what I want to I get at it a, a different way. We're all disciples of something. About 15 years ago, um, we all purchased an iPhone or an Android. Um, or Blackberry. Who, who, who are, like, got any Blackberry folks out there? Okay, Bruno. Were Blackberries big in Brazil? <laughs> what happened, you guys, is that when, uh, when the, the smartphone came out, we went to the store, and we attached ourselves and became disciples of technology. And it controls us. We, we do, like it's an extension of, of who we are. And Jesus says, if you want to know me, um, I want you to go and, and make, your, make, make yourself attached to me and tell others to be attached to me. And part of how we do that, I want to break that down in two ways. Part of how we become disciples of Jesus is through two, two main ways. One, one is what I would call like the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, scripture, spiritual disciplines. And I think of these things as like fire hydrants wherein God pours out his love on us. And it's very clear and evident of what Jesus is all about in these areas. Sacraments, prayer, scripture. And that's 
not something that really ends. You, you continue to become a disciple your entire life so that you're always being discipled and that you're always discipling someone in the, in the same way that you would be an apprentice of anything. Yeah, I remember uh, Marcus Heinrich said, he, he said, you know, back, back in the day, I just wanted to be the best cabinet maker in Lincoln. As simple as that, you know. And so after he made his first cabinet, you know, he's not like done. He's, he's at that time like just initiating into the apprenticeship of what it means to be a cabinet maker. And that's what it's like with Jesus. There's constantly learning. There's constantly new and evaluative things that you have to adjust to. And oftentimes, and you guys know this, whenever you're an expert in any field, um, what, sometimes what worked well in the past uh, doesn't in the present. And you got to adjust. You got to adapt. Um, when I was in transition in my last call, and I got some friends here from Texas who were, who were there during that time, I remember feeling uh, in a deep sense that my usefulness in a particular arena, it was on this campus, that my usefulness was like drying up. And I didn't know what to do with that. I was sad about that. And what had proven fruitful and robust five years prior just wasn't working anymore with students. But I didn't know, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know how to leave or, or where to go. And I remember um, when, I, when I began preaching at churches on Sunday morning, I remember thinking, this, this feels like a like a glove that fits. Like this makes, this makes sense to my makeup of who I am as a person. And I remember actually having energy on Sunday mornings and being like, man, this is, I, I haven't had that on campus in like almost a decade. Um, but I never would have discovered that had I not gone out and left what was familiar. Now, here's my question to you, and here's where we're going to get super practical. Um, when was the last time you felt like you put on a glove that fits? And I'm not talking about like an overtly Christian thing. And I hope for many of you that's not where your mind is. I hope for many of you, you're thinking of what you do day in and day out in your vocation. Uh, I know that some of you are incredible at being a boss. That you are, are very, very kind in how you orient towards your employees. And you are sharing the love of Jesus with them by just how you are, are helping them survive and thrive and take care of them. Jesus also has that in mind when he's talking about disciple making. That whatever you do, wherever you go, bring me with you. And watch how I can transform you and everybody around you. So here's the question. Do you live out of the awareness of God's presence in and through you at all, at all times, always guiding you, always giving you the courage to creatively meet whatever's in front of you at that given moment? Jesus doesn't see like uh, Bible studies and prayer as like a lot more holy than all other other like forms that that we participate in in this world. He says it's all holy. So whether you're an artist or you're a nurse or you're a janitor or you're a stay-at-home parent, are you are you conscious of the fact that Jesus is with you? 
Um, I remember uh, asking a professor at the University of Syracuse, or is it Syracuse University? I, w- I asked her, I was like, what's the best way that students can, can love you? And she said, by far the best way that students can love me is to be excellent students. And what I want to tell you all, if you're a student in, in high school or middle school or college, like, that's evangelistic to, like, treat your, treat your teachers well by saying, I want to learn. I want to be an excellent student. And throughout all of life, what you need to know is that Jesus, Jesus is with you. And I know some of you are thinking, like, well, at some point, you actually have to talk about Jesus, right? And uh, yes, that's true. But there's this great ministry called Young Life. They have this wonderful phrase, and they say, you have to earn the right to be heard. You have to earn the right to be heard. I have a friend who, this is intense, but I have a friend who had been used many times by other men sexually. And this is part of how he became a Christian. Uh, This guy from another ministry gave him a hug. And he said, he said, it was the first time a man ever gave me a hug that wasn't trying to get anything else from me. And so when that friend asked me if I wanted to read the Bible with him, I was like, okay, yeah. He had earned the right to be heard. So one, as you go, make disciples. Point two, uh, baptizing them into the name of the Trinity. At our church, we baptize those who have never claimed the name of Christ that are adults, and we baptize the children of adults. The reason why we do that is because of places like Acts 2. But regardless, uh, what I want you to know about baptism is that something very sacred happens at baptism. Ashna knows. Something very transcendent happens. Because when you are baptized into the name of the Trinity, what's What's actually occurring spiritually is that you're sort of getting a spiritual tattoo into your eternal identity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's going on, y'all, is that you're being included into the community of the Godhead. And when that happens, you also belong to the entire covenant community, both in real time and transcendent time, past, present, and future. So that you're, con- you're connected to Christians beyond the scope of your awareness. Um, I don't know if you remember way back in Matthew 1, uh, Jesus himself was baptized, and there was some pushback by his cousin on whether he should be baptized. And I don't know if you remember what Jesus says. He says, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus was baptized. That's a very interesting rationale. And what Jesus was referring to was this theme throughout all of Scripture called a covenant. And God's covenant throughout the history of humanity was that he had promised to be near human beings. He had promised to be near you. But he had also promised to punish those who didn't want to be near him punish those who didn't want to do what he said was right to do. And so when Jesus was baptized, what he was doing is, is he was saying, I'm being, I'm being plunged into the curses of all of humanity so that all of humanity could have the righteousness that I have to be the image of God in this world. 
And so you have all this language in Scripture of being sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, of being, of being washed in the waters in his death and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's presence being poured out in baptism. It's all this language pointing to the fact that you are now in union with Jesus Christ. You're included in, in the Trinitarian community. And that's what the church is. The, the community that is eternal. Sacraments, I love them because they're these little windows of the, trans, the transcendent realm. Uh, one of the church's primary tasks is to be good stewards of those mysteries of grace, which you see here and at the table. And the third task that Jesus gives the disciples here is to teach them, teach everyone you go and get into contact with to observe the commandments that he taught the disciples. Now, um, you could think of this as, as training, but, you know, Presbyterians are often said, like, we're bobblehead Christians. We're, this, this is the part, like, we excel at. Uh, we have a lot of knowledge uh, that we want to give to people. But w- one of the things that we're, we're constantly trying to do as Christians is training and the understanding that obedience to Jesus' commands is just merely uh, remembering what it means to be a human being again. That God, as your designer, knows how you best operate, and we forget that, and so we got to get back into the awareness that his rules are actually uh, freeing and not restrictive. That's how you, that's how you know you're, you're growing. When you look at Jesus' commands, you're like, this is, how, this is how I get joy. This isn't restrictive. And I, I've used this analogy before, but you know who the freest basketball player is on the court, right? Is it the one who does whatever he wants to or she, whatever she wants to all the time? No, it's the one who knows the rules so well that they, they can stay within the bounds of the rules and play the game. And Jesus' commandments are meant to set you free according to your design. It's like learning a new language. And over time, you become fluent. But even here, in, in like learning to obey Jesus, uh, we learn through our failures as well. Psalm 119, 71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You know the beauty of the law most when they have been broken. You know when you love the commandment, do not steal the most? When somebody takes your stuff, you know? Then you're like, oh, I see the beauty of what it's like when people don't steal. And Jesus is saying, in the end, my commandments will bring you the most joy because they are made for human flourishing. So learn from him. His commandments are not burdensome. So those are the three responses to the reality of his resurrection as we come to a close and as we come to the close of the book of Matthew. Discipling, calling people into the new reality of Jesus, baptizing, being marked with this new identity, and teaching and learning what it means to be human again. We have all that we've ever needed right now in Jesus Christ. And he's pretty clear in his instruction. But the most important thing is that he's with you. And he'll never leave you. And uh, I'll leave you with this. Uh, If you feel like you're not ready or equipped to go be a part of this, um, that's perfect. That's the people that Jesus likes to use, clearly. 
from the book of Matthew. He likes to use people who aren't very sure of what's going on. (laughs) So let me pray, and uh, we'll continue to worship through Confession and Assurance. Father, we thank you for this this great sending out that you gave to the disciples. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless us here as we continue that work, as we continue to participate in your kingdom spreading, as we continue to participate in the awareness that you're with us. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to know that you are so near and let us move into this world with confidence that you're with us in Christ's name. Amen.